Have you ever noticed that when you invite a neighbor, coworker, a friend to come to church, if they're not accustomed uh, with the family of God and what we do here, they've got two objections, inevitably. Number one is, all they want is my money over there. And number two, the house is full of hypocrites. And those I've heard over and over again. And if you're a guest with us today, we're not interested in giving, giving your money to us. And an offering plate comes by, just send it on by. Uh, you're not part of the family yet. Uh, when our son Scott was dating his girlfriend Shannon, uh, Marge invited him to bring her over for dinner. We didn't expect Shannon to show up and help Marge uh, set the table and uh, cook the meal and get everything prepared. And when the meal was over, we didn't expect her to clear the table, do the dishes, put things away. She's our guest. She was checking us out to see if maybe she wanted to be a part of this weird preacher's family. Later on, they were married. 30 years have almost passed away. And since that time, Shannon has become a part of our family. We love her every bit as much as either of our daughters. I mean, she's, she's always there early. You ask Marge, she'll help more than any of our own daughters. She, she is part of this family. And that's the way we look at it here at Areola Bible Church. We just want you to check it out. You might want to become a part of this family. Maybe not. But as you stay for a while and you say, I want to be a part of that family, then we want you to be a part of helping us reach others to come into that same family relationship. And yes, that does take some effort, takes some time, takes some work, takes some money. But if you're a family member, you naturally want to do that. Amen? Amen. And as far as hypocrites are concerned, <laughs> there's a little bit of hypocrisy in every one of us. Be honest. Do you want to show all your warts and wrinkles every time you show up? We want to put on our best in front of folks. But there's a difference between those of us who happen to have a bit of hypocrisy in us and those who practice it as a way of life. <laughs> so that's what we're going to look at today in Matthew chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 18. And I've asked the question, are you a hypocrite? Or maybe I could say, don't be a hypocrite. And you remember back last week we were talking about what God requires and there in verse uh, 20 of chapter 5, it says, uh, Your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, or you will in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and Pharisees prided themselves in outwardly obeying all the requirements of God. And the three most important things that you see listed here, and also in chapter 18 of Luke, where the Pharisee is standing with his arms outstretched, looking into heaven and saying, God, are you are so lucky to have me on your team. I'm such a good guy, not like this tax collector over here. And then he begins to say, God, you know that I pray three times every day. I fast two days out of every week. I give 10% of everything that I have. And reminding God of just how great he was and the Poor old tax collector back there is beating on his chest and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Don't have anything to offer. Just ask for your mercy and your grace. And the Bible says that that man, that tax collector, went home justified before God. But not that Pharisee, because of his 
hypocrisy, his self-righteousness. And now in the middle of the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, where Christ takes his disciples aside to teach them, but he had been with a huge crowd, and some of them followed, I'm sure, and they were listening in as well. And he wants to define what hypocrisy is so that his disciples never go there. And he takes those same three things and he points out how the scribes and the Pharisees abounded in hypocrisy. So the first thing we want to look at here is in the way that you give. And that's in uh, the first few verses, verses 1 through 4. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds Anything that involves giving of your time, your effort, your money to helping other people. Uh, Do not do it before men to be seen of men. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a a trumpet uh, before you uh, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. Uh, for they have, may have glory from men, assuredly I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, um, do not let... Uh, man, is there any way I can get a, more, a little more light up here? Uh, I've got older eyes, and uh, they say pretty well when there's light. Uh, Otherwise, I may have to borrow somebody's glasses. Um, When you do a charitable deed, uh, do not let your left hand know what your right hand... Ah, let there be light. Uh, Let let not your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That your charitable deed may, although it's in secret, your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Doing a charitable deed giving in the offering, uh, helping some ladies go to Nepal. When there's somebody hurting, you kind of help them out. When you spend your time and your effort helping somebody move, when you do things for other people that cost you time and effort and money, why do you do it? Well, these hypocrites, as you see in your outline, they wanted the most bang for their buck. Um, I have to explain that a little bit. Back in those days, they didn't have offering plates, and uh, there's no way you could give by mail or online or anything like that. Uh, You had to bring money, and they didn't have checks. They didn't have paper money. It was all in coins. And when you went to the synagogue or even at the temple, uh, there was no way to give except there was an opening with a chute that went down into the treasury. And these hypocrites would convert with the money changers every bit of money they had that they were going to give into the largest, least valuable coins. They were not going to give gold or silver, but they would get cheap copper coins. They would convert their money into nickels and pennies because they were bigger and they weren't worth much. So they would have a huge basket full of money. And as they were going to the synagogue to give, they would have someone blow a trumpet, make an announcement, 
Pharisee so-and-so or Rabbi so-and-so is going to give. And everybody would gather around and he'd pick up that basket and he'd pour it in and it would rattle and it would clang and it would make noise as it went in there. And everybody would go, oh my, what a righteous man. A man who's given so sacrificially. Oh, we admire him so much. And God says, you've had your reward. Enjoy that applause. Enjoy that admiration because that's all you're ever going to get. In this life or in the world to come, I've wiped that off the slate. You ain't getting nothing for Christmas or any other time. That's the hypocrites. What does he say uh, for God, people to do? Before I get into that, it wasn't just the hypocrites back then. There, there has been this way of manifesting your righteousness in front of people through what you give. In the colonial days, um, they used to rent out pews. And they took offerings, of course, but in order to meet their budget, uh, the pews in front would rent out for a lot of money. And every month, wealthy families would pay that rent so that when it came time to come to church, their family would march in and sit right on the front row. Everybody said, wow, they must have given a lot of money. And then each row would be a little less expensive. So if, if you wanted people to notice that you were a faithful giver and you wanted their appreciation, you got as close to the front as you could. But those back pews, oh, that was the dollar seats. Uh, nobody who really loved God sat back there. And the visitors and the poor folks, they just had to fend for themselves in the back any way they could. Hypocrisy. My family marches in in our best clothing, and we come right up to the front, and we line up in that pew right there where nobody is. We don't have any hypocrites here today. <laughs> but we don't rent out our pews. We, we don't. <laughs> There's one. <laughs> All right. Uh, and in modern times, when a church is in a building program or they've got a special need, uh, they'll honor somebody who gave a great deal. They'll, they sometimes will put plaques on the, on the sides of pews. This was paid for by so-and-so. Or uh, they might even name a building after someone because they gave a great deal. In some instances, there's a statue out there of someone who's this great patriarch. That's all you're getting. <laughs> a church that Marge and I attended years ago, I was not the pastor, by the way, but the pastor uh, wanted to build, a, and he often announced, the largest church in all the world right here. But in order to keep that thing going and to keep growing, he spent an awful lot of money. Bought buses to bus people in, had promotions, gave things away. Um, <laughs> inevitably, we would come up short. And in, he would encourage everybody to give sacrificially to meet the special need. Because he was on radio and television programs and lots of bills coming in so one year it was build a wall right on the side of the building there was this big area with outlines of where bricks belonged and we got the enemy out there and they're trying to get us they're trying to repossess what we've got they want to kick us out of these buildings but we want to build a wall between us and them and they had a whole box full of those stick-on bricks you put, peel off the back and you stick it on and everybody was encouraged to give as much money as they could above and beyond their giving 
And every time they gave $100, they could write their name on one of those bricks and paste it on the wall. And there was a family that gave $1,000. They got 10 bricks on that wall. Others were saying, well, I'm going to get some bricks on that wall. And pretty soon, we had the wall filled, and everybody who had given, their name was on a brick. And poor guy could only have one brick. And the poor fellow who had no bricks at all. But thank God for those who had their names all over that wall. How sad. How very sad. The next year, it was fill the gap. Here we had a big picture of where we are, this big old hole over here, our debts, where we need to be. This time, they were peel off rocks. You peel off this rock, and you write your name on it, and stick it on it. And same thing. Uh, that only worked for a few years, and people said, we aren't building any more walls. We're not filling any more gaps. And the pastor resigned and went off to other greener pastures and uh, they asked me to be the pastor and kind of clean up the mess it wasn't any fun but those people that pasted those things on the wall that's all you're going to get what does God want us to do in our giving he wants us to give anonymously as anonymously as possible and when he says don't let your right hand your left hand know what your right hand's doing. It doesn't mean that you're to give just emotionally and sporadically with no thought. Or, the Bible says, as a man purposes in his heart, so let him give. He needs to be a manager, a good manager of his business, of his home, uh, of his finances. But he needs to plan to give uh, anonymously as possible. Um, there's nothing wrong with writing a check and secretary or treasurer will mark that down at the end of the year you'll get a notification for income tax purposes that's just good stewardship but you can look all over these walls and you won't find any list of names of who gave what I have no idea and in all my ministry never wanted to know what any of our people gave because that's not my business and I would, I'm afraid I would look at people with dollar signs in front of my eyes I need to be good to old Dean here because he's a big giver. He dresses nice, by the way. And, and so I want, to be, I want to be nice to him. I, I don't know. Um, I, don't, I don't know that about Dean at all. <laughs> but just as an example. But someone over here, oh, I don't need to pay much attention to him because he didn't give that much. Maybe somebody else didn't give at all as far as I know. That's none of my business, none of your business. That's between you and God. To give as anonymously as possible. Um, you don't announce what you're going to give you don't report what you've given you simply make that a matter between you and the Lord and it says you may not get a lot of appreciation you may not get praise you may not get your name posted anywhere but God who sees in secret will reward you openly in this life and especially in the life to come we're going to talk more about that next week the second thing is in the way that you pray how do you pray well uh, there's quite a passage here and uh, we've heard it we've sung it so uh, let's just read it and when you pray you're not to be like the hypocrites for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men, assuredly, I say, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, 
And when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. We'll read the rest of it in a moment, but this is the first part. When you pray, the Pharisees, the hypocrites, they wanted to be heard far and wide. They stand before the synagogues on the street corners. They draw attention to themselves, and they pray loud, and they pray eloquently. And if you really want to be thought spiritual, you pray in the King James language. Oh, thou most omnipotent heavenly Father, thou that did create the heavens and the earth, thou that did put the stars in the sky, thou art great and glorious. And, and people listen to that and say, wow, what a spiritual guy. Man, he knows God. He speaks in God's language. Wow, he's a real prayer. You've had your reward. And there are those who look for opportunities to pray, and they're very careful about their pronunciation and their diction and their syntax and their grammar so that people will say, wow, that person really knows the Lord. That person really can pray. You've just had your reward. If you really want to pray, get serious. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying openly with folks. And we do that a lot. We, we pray here in our services and in our smaller groups and Bible studies. But I don't think there's anybody that says, oh, it's my turn. I want people to hear me pray. I want them to appreciate my, my great knowledge, vast knowledge of God and so on. We're just sharing with one another. But for the real uh, things of the heart, the things that are really drawing your attention uh, and you want to really communicate with a boss, you get alone. You, like it says, you go in and shut the door. Or uh, What I like to do early in the mornings, I walk through the timbers and down in the canyon, and it's me and the birds and the, and the beasts and the deer, and, but it's especially me and my boss, me and my God. If you really want to communicate with God, uh, you, you do it uh, in a way that is private. If you're taking notes, we should pray privately with our God from our heart. And then the next part about prayer, and here he begins in verse 7. He says, And when you pray, do not use the vain repetitions of the heathen, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you even ask them. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. For if any of you uh, forgive men their, their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive their passes, men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. 
When you pray, he says, don't use the vain repetitions of the heathen. They um, <clears throat> want uh, to love. They love that repetitious prayer. And back then, and even today in various parts of the world, even in Christian circles, we can be guilty of those vain repetitions. You know, you, you go to the Holy Land today at the Temple Mount, at the uh, foundation of the old temple. Temple's been gone for 2,000 years, but that foundation's still there, big stones. And uh, those Orthodox, Hittic Jews go there to pray, and they, they get out there where they've got a lot of people that see them, and they'll pray loud, and they will move their whole bodies as they're praying to gain attention, and uh, folks can see them and hear them. And again, wow, what righteous men they must be. But as they're praying, they're not praying extemporaneously, not praying from the heart. They're praying prayers that they learned in their synagogues from the time they're little kids. They can say them in their sleep over and over again, the same prayers. When we see the devout Muslims spread out their cloths, kneel there towards the east, pray to Allah, same thing. They're not praying from their heart about their needs, what's going on in their lives. They're praying memorized prayers that they prayed over and over and over again. The Hindus do the same things, and the Buddhists have come up with a real invention. That's called the prayer wheel. It's a round cylinder, usually made out of metal, uh, and it has a... I don't know what you'd call it, up the middle of it to hold it with, like a big rattle. And uh, somehow it's designed so that that will turn. And so they can, they can turn that wheel, and it goes around and around. And on the inside and on the outside are engraved all kinds of Buddhist prayers. And so with that sort of a device, you can be watching football and praying at the same time. Ladies, you can be watching reruns of Downton Abbey, and you're still praying all the while. Man, what a deal. You've got all those prayers going up. Keep that prayer wheel burning, turning. Keep those fires burning. Just a little talk with Jesus makes it right. You have your reward. And you know what is the sad thing is that many Christians, about the only prayer they know is the Lord's Prayer. And they pray it over and over and over again. And God says that our prayers are not to be vain repetitions. I could say the Lord's Prayer and be thinking about something else entirely. And you probably could too. I have developed a great ability. We can have these words up on the screen. I can read them. I can sing them audibly. But I can be thinking about something else entirely. That may be my spiritual gift. I'm not sure. But you know what? <laughs> Talk about double tasking. I can do that. But you know, God's not listening. He's not paying attention to any of that. There was a time when I was in high school and playing on the basketball team, and we were on a road trip. We went up to Montrose, played them one night, and stayed overnight <clears throat> in a motel. And then we played Delta the next night and stayed in a motel. Then we drove home. That was great for me, a kid in the country who had never been in a motel, never, <laughs> never gone anywhere. But one night we were up there and found out that some of our friends, four guys, were out partying and drinking, and they crashed their car. And nobody was killed, but 
they were all hurt, and some of them very seriously. And one of the cheerleaders said, let's go down to the such and such a church and let's pray. Well, I was a new Christian there and I said, that's a good idea. And we went down there and a whole bunch of us on the team and the cheerleaders and some other folks had come up. And the leader, self-appointed leader, got up and said, all right, let's pray. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will. And right, didn't have anything to do with those guys and the injury they had, but this is how we pray. That's the only kind of praying they ever did. And I, growing up, did some of the same things. We had prayer before our meals, but it was always the same prayer. And there were six of us around the table, and we would take turns. It's my turn to pray. Father, we thank you for the night, for the present, pleasant morning light, for rest, for food, for loving care, and all that makes the world so fair. Amen. Let's eat. And every meal, we all, whoever's praying, prayed the same prayer. Nothing wrong with that prayer, but after a while, it means nothing. Once again, I could say it without ever thinking. I'm thinking that, that food that's on my plate while I'm saying that prayer. When I went to bed at night, did it again. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I should die before I wake, that's a pleasant thought for a little kid. I pray the Lord my soul to take. Those things, God is not paying attention. But you get the applause of those who hear you pray repetitious prayers. God wants us to pray deliberately, intentionally, purposefully. And we see that here in in these verses that we just read. He says, Therefore not do, do not do like them. For your Father knows your needs before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore pray. He doesn't say, with these words, pray. But after this manner, after this pattern, pray. And there are five different things that are covered in the Lord's Prayer that was really the disciples' prayer because they wanted to know how to pray. And he says, this is a good way for you to pray. Pray about these things. And so <clears throat> we have a list here, and you might want to write them down. Pray with adoration. That was what we saw on the screen, the Lord's Prayer. Just bragging on God, thanking God, adoration. Our Father which is in heaven, hallowed, blessed, exalted be your name. And, and a lot of times that's the extent of the prayer. That's why you're praying. You want to honor God, praise Him. David did that a lot in the Psalms. The last five or six Psalms in, in all of the Psalms are all praising God, lifting Him up, bragging on Him. And we don't just say those words over and over again. From our heart, we praise God. We thank Him. We give Him glory. We adore Him. And so that's one of the things that needs to characterize our prayer life. Secondly, pray with submission. Where he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's submission to God. Not my will, but yours be done. That's how Christ prayed in the garden. And the song, have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I'm waiting, yielded and still. 
There needs to be times when we just say, God, this is what I want, but I don't know if this is right. I want your will. I want to walk in your path. I want to do what you want me to do. Say what you want me to say. Be what you want me to be. Submission in your prayer. Thirdly, supplication, which means to ask. That's one of the reasons we pray. In fact, that's kind of the definition. In the legal terms, someone will say, I pray the court. He's saying, I'm asking the court. And that's one of the reasons we pray, to ask God for our daily bread, our present need. That's what it's all about. Sometimes they can be very short prayers. The disciples in the boat, when the waves were high and the wind was howling and the boat was filling with water, they prayed eloquently, Our Father that did create. No! They prayed two words. Lord, and the second one is one word, save us. <laughs> Lord, save. Just very short and to the point. You don't need to impress God. You don't need to use big words. You don't need to pray over and over again. God, save us. And God is responsive to our needs. When Peter was arrested in Acts chapter 12, I think it is, uh, and they'd already killed James, and they were planning to kill him, and the people were gathered together, they were praying, not for a good crop uh, in the harvest, not that the Romans would not oppress them in this matter, uh, not that um, somebody's sick or someone needs a job. Or Those were needs that they did pray about, but at that particular point, it was Peter's in trouble. He needs to be rescued. God, release him, and God did, and they didn't believe it. <laughs> Peter comes after the angel delivered him. He knocks on the door, and they, Rhoda comes to the door, and she runs back and says, Peter, he's out there. And they said, go away. You're bothering us. Don't you see we're praying? <laughs> so there is, like I said, a little bit of hypocrisy in the best of us. But pray with definition. Pray what, for what your needs are. There's somebody that's sick. There's somebody that needs a job. Uh, someone is struggling uh, with a problem in the family or the marriage, we pray with definition. We pray deliberately. Lord, grant our needs. And you know, there's over half the people in the world that pray this very need. Lord, give us today enough food to feed our family today. A very real prayer. The fourth thing is pray for forgiveness. Lord, forgive us our debts or our trespasses, I was taught, uh, as we forgive our debtors or those who trespass against us. That doesn't mean, and we look further down and read those verses, it says, if you forgive your uh, ones who have offended you, then God will forgive you. If you don't, then God won't forgive you. That doesn't mean <laughs> that you'll go to hell if you don't forgive everybody that's offended you. Our relationship is absolutely settled in Jesus Christ. And that's irrevocable, and it's unconditional. But our fellowship can be changed and affected by our attitudes and so on. If, if we hold grudges, if we're bitter, uh, then don't expect to have close, intimate fellowship with God. But if we recognize uh, the situation and we uh, recover our brother and we make things right and we forgive that one who's affected us, then there is a cleansing and a restoration of that 
fellowship. Like in 1 John 1, 9, if we, if we say we're not sinners, we lie to ourselves and truth's not in us. But if we confess it, agree with God, uh, then he's faithful and just to forgive us and restore that fellowship that we have uh, damaged by our sinfulness, whatever it is, especially if we refuse to forgive. So we need to pray that we can be forgiven. And again, it, it's... It's really important. David, when he prayed in Psalm 51, he didn't say, yeah, well, it was Bathsheba's fault or it was uh, because of uh, what my men didn't, uh, didn't do right or because I happened to be in the wrong place. Uh, it was my parents' fault who didn't raise me. He just said, I'm at fault. I'm the guilty one. I'm the one. I was conceived in iniquity, brought forth in sin. I am absolutely guilty. God, forgive me and restore to me the joy of my salvation. Not my salvation. He had never lost it. But restore to me that sweet fellowship, that intimacy, the joy of my salvation. So forgiveness is real important, and we need to be... How do you think that Peter prayed after he denied the Lord? Went out into that outer area and fell on his face and wept bitterly. Do you think he prayed, God, that girl at the... At the fire deceived me. That fellow, he tricked me. Uh, no, he'd already seen the Lord look at him. Not in condemnation, but in pity and in love. His heart was broken. And he prayed, God, forgive me. And God did. Restored him to amazing service uh, for the rest of his life. And then for deliverance. Not deliverance necessary from danger, but deliverance from the evil one. Don't allow us to go into temptation to, to commit sin, but deliver us from the evil one, from the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, uh, against the rulers of darkness, spiritual wickedness in high places. And then he, and this is in Ephesians 6, where he says, Take on the armor of God, your loins girt about with truth, a breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. And then he says, praying always with all prayer and supplication for the saints. And he says, pray for me that the devil won't defeat me, that I can open my mouth boldly and proclaim the word of God. Prayer is the greatest weapon and and then he, he talks about, for thine is the kingdom and the power and glory forever. You know, in a lot of the manuscripts, it's not even there. But because people prayed this prayer over and over again, it became a major part of their worship. They wanted it to sound end with great flair. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And so it got later on added into the text. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's... It's just that this prayer was not intended to be something that you said over and over and over again, so it needs to sound really great because it's just a pattern. It's a way in which we ought to pray. Um, you know, my time is pretty much gone, uh, but he also says about uh, fasting. When you fast, um, how are you supposed to fast? Verses 16 through 18. Um, I'm just going to summarize it. He says, the hypocrites, what do they do? They put dark circles under their eyes. They put dark on their cheeks so they look like they are sunken in. They'll put on old clothes, sackcloth. They'll go about, oh, and people say, oh, what a righteous man. 
Here he's fasting again. He's going to starve to death. Oh, my, he must love God. You've just had your reward. He says, when you fast, do it cheerfully. Wash your face, comb your hair, anoint yourself, put on nice clothes, go out with a spring in your step and a smile on your face, and no one's going to know you're fasting. And fasting comes in many different forms. It may be going several days without food, or maybe one or two days a week without food, or maybe skipping a meal each day. And it's not always food. It can, you could be fasting from other things that give you pleasure, many ways in which you fast. But the point is, you don't want anybody to know that you're fasting. I fasted three different times in my life. Once it was forced on me when I was in the Air Force Academy. They took us out in the middle of the wilderness, dumped us off to live off the land. But the week before, 300 cadets had been there, and they ate everything that could be eaten. And we were to exist for a week and then hike back to the Air Force Academy about 20 miles. And I fasted. I didn't like it. I wasn't more spiritual. I wasn't thinking about God at all, except what in the world have I got into here, Lord? Um, then uh, another time, I went three days without any food. Nothing, just water. Was I spiritual during that time? No, I told everybody, man, I'm so hungry. I, I don't know why I'm doing this. One time, Marge and I fasted for a week, and we, we drank only juices. And I found that if you put it in the blender, you can make juice about, out of about everything. <laughs> they were not the most spiritual times in my life. But the whole point is, fasting to many people is very important. It's a way that they can put aside something that's very important to them so that they might focus on the things of God. doesn't mean you're not hungry. You're very hungry. But instead of satisfying that hunger, you come before God. But you do it cheerfully. You do it joyfully. And when you're fasting or denying yourself some pleasure to seek God's special will in your life, nobody ought to know about it. But not so with the Pharisee, not so with the hypocrites. God wants us to do those kinds of things as anonymously, inconspicuously as possible. And God who sees us and knows our heart in secret is faithful to record those things and reward us in this life especially in the world to come, which is something we want to talk about next week. So in conclusion, remember that uh, commercial uh, years ago where a guy's running a repair shop, and he says, you can pay me now and get your oil changed and get a tune-up and uh, those kinds of things, maintenance things, or you can pay me later. And it shows his car being towed in by, by a tow truck and got to replace the transmission or the engine. You can pay me now, or you can pay me later. And that's the whole point. Are you interested in now and the things of this world and the praise of men and the applause of the crowd? You get that now, but you ain't getting nothing later. God says, you pay me now with your service, with your giving, with your prayers, with your fasting. But do it in private between you and me, and then I'll pay you later. I'll see to it that your needs are met. Are you going to get the approval of men or the approval of God? That's the choice. And that's what separates uh, the folks that are 
walking with God, but they got a little bit of hypocrisy, can't help it, we got a sin nature uh, in the corners of their life between them and those who practice hypocrisy as a way of life. Don't be a hypocrite. Ask God to search your heart and lead you in the way that he wants you to go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for being real, upfront, and honest. Jesus wanted those people, his disciples, and those who listened uh, to stay away from the desire to gain men's approval, their applause, their recognition, and their rewards, and forego that and be honest and direct and quiet and anonymous as possible in serving you, knowing that you see you in secret see us openly and will reward us accordingly. God, a very simple message. I pray that we can take something home with us as we go and that we might serve you because we love you because you've given, given so much for us. Thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.